Welcome to Nutritank's podcast. When you tune in, you're going to listen to a fantastic array of speakers speaking about things in the following fields such as food, farming, nutrition, lifestyle medicine and other areas of health. We can't wait to have you with us on this journey. Millennials, coddled entitled, narcissistic, work shy and bloody lazy. We want to redeem millennials and give ourselves a good reputation. We have poured endless passions and hard work into Nutritank and this podcast. We hope you learn and enjoy. If you enjoyed today's episode on the podcast, then please subscribe to the rest of the podcast. Share it with your friends, family and colleagues. Give the podcast a five-star rating and leave a kind review. It will really help with Nutritank's mission to be the leading hub for food, nutrition and lifestyle medicine. Hello everyone, it's your host Ali Jaffe and welcome to today's episode on Nutritank's Nourish Your Mind podcast. Today's episode will be part two of our food and mood sequence and on this episode we'll look at the UK and NHS perspective on how nutrition can be, can be implemented into psychiatric practice and like I mentioned on part one if you've already listened to that, this area around nutritional psychiatry and how food affects our mood is something very close to my heart and I'm deeply passionate about it as I'd like to pursue a career in psychiatry and implement practices around nutrition and lifestyle medicine with my future patients. So enough about me, let's introduce our wonderful guests. First up, it's Dr. Kirsty Alderton. Kirsty, like me, studied medicine at Bristol University and since then she's been working in mental health services in Bristol for over seven years. She's a, she's a practicing consultant psychiatrist with a wide range of experience, including perinatal mental health, eating disorders and liaison psychiatry. Kirsty is passionate about research and advancing clinical practice using novel approaches such as psychedelic and nutritional psychiatry. She is currently a co-therapist on a research study for psilocybin and treatment-resistant depression. She loves teaching and educating both professionals and the general public on the impact that nutrition has on mental health and is keen to implement such approaches into mainstream health services. Kirsty also promotes the importance of mind-body medicine and uses a more integrated approach when it comes to patient care, including lifestyle medicine and a compassion-focused model when working with patients. Alongside her NHS work, Kirsty has an online health and well-being business through Arbonne, where she coaches and mentors others. She's also a trustee for Bluebell Care, a charity that supports women in the perinatal period. And more recently, Kirsty, along with other psychiatrists, has created a YouTube channel called Psychiatrics, and she discusses the mind in the modern world with her female psychiatrist colleagues. And now on to the ever-inspiring, ever-impressive Dr. Pratima Singh. Pratima completed her medical degree in India before moving to the UK to specialise in psychiatry. And she now works at the Maudsley NHS Hospital in London, where she obtained her higher degree and worked as a consultant psychiatrist for four years. Currently, Pratima is a community and adult psychiatrist working in deprived London um, suburban areas where she is based in a team that works closely with GPs to plan care for patients presenting with mental illness. She believes that a holistic approach in medicine presents a great opportunity to address the huge burden of mental health morbidity in the NHS. 
Prasma is a strong advocate of intensive lifestyle interventions as a key tool in addressing chronic mental health conditions and the judicious and informed use of psychotropic medication. She also has a deep interest in understanding how systems of care influence the quality of patient care and is very passionate about the area of nutritional psychiatry. Prasma has spoken at many high-profile conferences and excitingly spoke at St George's Medical School in London last summer on the topic of nutritional psychiatry. So let's welcome both these wonderful women. Good morning to you both. It's such a pleasure to have you on Nutritank's Nourish Your Mind podcast today. I know this one has been a long time in the making, so really passionate about today's conversation around food and mood and all things nutritional psychiatry. So if you could just start off by introducing yourself to our audience. Pratima, why don't you go first? Um, Thank you so much, Ali, for inviting me and sharing this wonderful uh, platform. So I'm Pratima Singh. I am a community and adult psychiatrist, and I work in Hertfordshire in um, the Watford suburb of uh, London. And Kirsty. Yeah, hi, morning, and yeah, again, thank you so much, Ali, for having me on this podcast. Um, I am a consultant psychiatrist working in Bristol, um, yeah, currently uh, working in eating disorder service, um, but yeah, massively passionate about other areas of psychiatry too. Brilliant, and we're going to just dive straight into it. So... Starting off with Pratima, could you just tell our listeners a little bit about why you decided to specialise in psychiatry when you were in training? Um, so, I mean, my entry into psychiatry was really down to this um, really influential and dynamic charismatic teacher, Dr. Sudhir Bhabe, um, who taught us psychiatry in medical school and in fact his influence was so profound that we had a disproportionately high number of uh, students who went on to make a career in psychiatry and I had the good fortune of working with him immediately after completing my trade um, uh, training so I really fell in love with psychiatry in medical school and you know just to uh, appreciating how holistic this um, uh, field was and how varied and um, deeply um, diverse the presentations could uh, be. So I, after my training and my initial um, uh, years of experience in India, I came to Europe with the aspiration of training at Morsley um, because I wanted a bit more experience in research and uh, psychotherapy, which was not as developed in India back mm-hmm. then. So this is about 17, 20 years ago. Um, but before I came, I had experience of working um, in psychiatry in a very um, Indian setting, which basically meant a very biomedical uh, approach. And we had an outpatient clinic of 150 patients a day, so a very different kind of uh, psychiatry. And yeah, I've never um, fallen out of love um, <laughs> with psychiatry since then. That's so wonderful to hear as someone who is aspiring to train as a psychiatrist. Such a lovely journey. And Kirsty, tell us about you. Yeah, so my, my journey really is, well, very different. Um, uh, I knew really early on in med school, actually, that was going to be psychiatry. I think probably within probably within the first year. So I'd actually did pre-med, and then in my first year of medicine, I realised I wanted to do it. So I applied for medicine in the first place because I wanted to be uh, that lady of silent witness. 
um, and what's her name, Amelia, I think, the actress. <laughs> but um, so yeah, so all my all my entry into medicine was based on um, TV shows, um, and I wanted to be a forensic pathologist actually because I just had this uh, real intrigue with um, yeah that whole area. It wasn't until um, kind of yeah first year in, in med school I realised it wasn't actually you know being in a lab and looking at cells that I was interested in. It was people. Um, I, I just became really fascinated with why people do the things they do um, and kind of how people behave um, and I didn't actually know I don't think I even knew what psychiatry was and I, I went to speak to somebody and said look does, does this exist and they um, I was actually introduced to an area called forensic psychiatry um, which is kind of the overlap between the criminal system and those of mental health problems um, so yeah so then my, my career kind of went from there I knew really early on and kind of just took every talked about it all of the time with, with everybody at med school and got this real sense actually that um, this isn't what everybody else <laughs> was going to be doing um, quite early on so but yeah I think I, uh, I really enjoyed uh, the idea that I might pick a specialty that actually not everybody else was going to do so yeah it's one of the most interesting areas um, that I can think of um, what is more interesting than kind of um, humans human suffering and why we do the things we do so yeah um, yeah, that interest has grown and grown. Yeah, no, that's so inspiring to hear that um, you came to that kind of understanding of what you wanted to do based on um, just kind of all the experience you'd had. And of course, I've also been inspired by certain TV shows. Um, can't say Meredith Grey hasn't inspired me, but hey ho. Um, so what do you both think some of the harmful stereotypes or just stereotypes in general and assumptions people make about specialising in psychiatry? Yeah, I mean, I, I think, I think there are a lot of, yeah, there's a lot of prejudice perhaps against mental illness. And I think, I think that that has changed in itself, but even within, I guess, even within a medical specialty, um, you know, that I've certainly experienced from, I guess, other doctors as well, mm. this kind of idea that psychiatry isn't um, a proper specialty. Um, I've certainly been told that um, we're not proper doctors. Um, I actually find this quite funny now, so I think this is probably part of what drives me um, in this area, is that I I just absolutely love it, and I have such a passion for it, But so nobody else's opinions kind of in really you know influence me that much but I, I I do it is still happening um yeah in medicine that kind of yeah that idea so Sure, and I saw on Psychochicks that I was watching the other day, the episode, you were talking about um, at the start of COVID when you were on the front line and how the mental health services just kind of took, um, yeah, were on the back burner. So can you just elaborate a bit on that? Yeah, that was actually really quite painful and I think I alluded to that in the episode, but it was, you know, we our mental health services were completely rearranged through COVID. We had... Um, our junior doctors who do a super important job in mental health services they were taken away from our wards to you know to the front line and I understand what we were preparing for but at the same time our patients were left without the you know the, the care that they should have been having during that period so um, and that for me was just another little reminder that actually there isn't parity of esteem still and um, we will continue you know I will continue to push for that 
um, as strongly as possible. But yeah, that was that was quite painful. Um, and uh, yeah, so sure. it's, it's all it's all back to normal now, though. <laughs> yes, back. for now, for now, for now. For now, for now. <laughs> yeah, um, and, I, and I think this idea that I, I think the there were a lot of um, you know, in the press, um, people saying, you know, many months later, oh, mental health services are now resuming. Um, and I just thought, where do you think they've been, actually? You know, people with mental illness um, still having COVID. And we, you know, we saw huge increases in presentations for services uh, during, during that really difficult time. So, yeah, we are here. <laughs> and Pratima, have you had any similar thoughts or insights around this? Um, yes, yeah, so I think going for, back to your original question about stereotypes and assumptions, I completely agree with Kirsty. I think there's a deep-rooted stigma against not only mental health patients, but by mental, uh, you know, against mental health professions. And you know, anybody who works in mental health will experience this on a daily basis. And I think this is definitely something that I feel very strongly about. And you know, I I, I feel that these this division is probably um, more uh, so in systems like uh, NHS, where we have physically separated the mental health trust from acute health trust. I, mm. I think it's a this divide between the mind and body. I am a great believer that systems of care influence the care. Um, and systems of care reflect how we think about, um, uh, you know, specialities. So I, I think the very practice of psychiatry in uh, UK, you know, is on the premise that you know, as if the head is not attached to the uh, body. And you know, I, I, I agree that uh, you know, patients get a very poor deal when they are in need of physical health. But also, I think the same applies when patients with physical health are signposted to us because there's this magical belief that, uh, you know, the bones could go to a rheumatologist, the head could go to a neurologist, you know, the mind could come to a psychiatrist. So, you know, um, I, I feel this lack of integration affects, um, uh, you know, both clinicians and uh, patients and leads to poor care. I think during COVID, absolutely. I, it, well, it has been a very interesting experience to, you know, live through the COVID lockdown and you know, the, the experience has been really varied. I've had so many patients who have said that you know COVID has made absolutely no difference. In fact, it has helped because now everybody is living inside mm. with anxiety. So you know, people feel like for the first time they normalize give a flavor, mm. yeah, give a give a flavor of what their day to day life is. There are other patients who have seriously struggled with mm. the lack of. Um, you know, human connection. Um, just a couple of days ago, I was speaking to one of my patients with schizophrenia who's been doing really well, really stable. He, you know, in my last review in January, he said, yes, this is the happiest he has ever uh, felt. Things are really moving well for him. And he was in deep depression at a recent review. He said that he's really struggling with the lack of contact, not being able to go to this support place where um, which he visited weekly. So I think the um, experiences have been very uh, varied. I've obviously not, um, you know, felt the way we dealt with it was uh, great. Uh, you know, this 
whole pause in services was not really a pause. You know, employees don't pause. Human experiences don't uh, uh, pause. But uh, you know, it has allowed us to stop and reflect on uh, the way we do things. And as we were discussing earlier, Ali, that it has kind of super uh, fast forwarded some digital innovations, which are a good thing. But uh, I think it has also demystified. You know, people mm-hmm. are talking about a tsunami of mental illness. So there's a real appreciation that we cannot go through a profound and kind of life-changing experience on a global level like COVID and not be affected by it. And we are certainly seeing lots of mental health presentations, both in patients who have had um, the COVID infections and have been in ITU, etc. I'm seeing lots of post-ITU presentations in the community and each presentation is completely different. You know, some presenting with neurological um, uh, presentations, some cognitive, some mood and anxiety presentations. So it's, it's really a space to watch. Um, but I think the other thing has been the social impact and I think that will, that will take time. So, you know, we are going to be in a period of deep economic recession and as we know, that times like this affect our patients negatively and lead to mental health presentations um, that can go on for a very long time um, after an epidemic. Wow, no, thank you for your insights. It's so fascinating to hear, I think in particular for me, the point you made about how the actual system of care can reflect on how we think view the mind and body and the mind and body connection and how that in turn has an impact on patients and wider society and how we view mental health and is it given the same emphasis as physical health and I never really thought about it how systemic it is and how the NHS is run so do you think that um, other other places in the world take a more holistic approach do you know of any other countries that perhaps it is much more joined up together the physical and mental health care Actually, this has been an area of uh, interest uh, because during my leadership training, we were closely looking at health systems across the world. And I I truly can't say that somewhere else does it more holistically and better. But it does seem that, you know, where um, mental health is not so segregated, there are some advantages, but there are also disadvantages. So, for example, one of my closest friends is a child psychiatrist in America um, and sits in the same building as... uh, the rest of the specialities and her interaction with her colleagues. So I think it, it, it presents with opportunities to reduce stigma because you are having more professional interactions. Your patients are using the same cafeteria. You're not kind of hidden into, um, you know, what I feel is a modern face of the asylum. You're, you don't go to this uh, other place, which again, you know, is why there's so much emphasis on community psychiatry. You know, we, we have unblocked the asylum, but we we have not properly um, integrated. So there, there are advantages and disadvantages. So community psychiatry almost is non-existent in America, for example, mm-hmm. and that is definitely a gain in terms of how we do uh, um, things. Um, but yeah, I mean, I I always reflect back on my experience in India, where you know there, there is no organized healthcare system. Most of the healthcare is private. And I, I, I often reflect on, you know, what what happens when you go to see a psychiatrist and when you don't have this organized healthcare system where things can be separated. And I do feel that sometimes you're forced to think, uh, look at things more collectively. At least that was my experience of training, uh, my early training uh, before I came to UK, that, you know, the patient just could not afford a um, psychiatrist and endocrinologist and mm. an MD medicine and a diabetologist. So I was 
was the person who was looking to see if there was thyroid dysfunction, keeping an eye on their uh, weight, even though I was not leading on that as well. So it, it was very much. And again, I think it's interesting because that was the system of care that forced me to look at everything so that I don't miss anything. And if there was something that stood out, then I could signpost uh, the patient. So, yeah, I think it does make a difference. Mm-hmm. I, went, I, went, I wondered if I could just add to that as well. So, Pratima, that the point you make about physical and mental health being split is, you know, is, is, is really, really apparent. And we do, I guess we do have this branch of uh, psychiatry, which is liaison. Um, mm. which kind of tries to tie that up so we have psychiatrists working within you know the acute hospitals and really linking things together but I guess I just wanted to take things one step further and reflect on the fact that mental health services split people up further mm-hmm. yeah and I I think for me with my experience over you know the past 10 years is really noticing that kind of division that happens within mental health services itself, the, the, this temptation to try and split people's um, suffering up somehow. Um, and I find that fascinating. So I, I guess I'll give an example, you know, if, if, for example, somebody is presenting, you know, with an eating disorder, or that's kind of their most prevalent um, struggle, um, they may go to an eating disorder service. Um, if they then get pregnant, they might then go to the perinatal service mm. for a bit. There could be mm. some overlap that. Um, you know, if they're self-harming, they might go somewhere else. And I find that in itself, um, I, I appreciate that, you know, somehow we have to break things down. But that underneath, I think, all of these presentations is is a real kind of, um, you know, the thing that's driving it underneath tends to be very, you know, very similar for people. It's either been some elements of trauma, um, some sort of suffering. And then to have parts of you divided out, be sent to different departments to have treatment for those um that's the thing that kind of really yeah frustrates me about how current services are um i suppose which is why i then yeah started to think about things more holistically and you know how can we help people as a whole Mm. (laughs) rather than breaking Mm. things down yeah completely and thank you for sharing that i think it's so important for our listeners to hear from consultant psychiatrists just the kind of barriers there are in the system and you know how you get on with it and the alternative kind of approaches and solutions that you've looked to to kind of rectify it all so um in line with taking a more holistic approach let's actually discuss the main meaty bit of the podcast today and let's talk about nutrition and lifestyle medicine within psychiatry so I want to hear from both of you what drew you to this more holistic outlook and um, why you think nutrition and lifestyle medicine interventions can be so useful within psychiatry arena. So Pratima, do you want to start off first? Just tell us a little bit about how you became interested in it all. Yeah, um, so I, I guess my training uh, probably touched upon um, the lifestyle issues and I think that was mostly because of this disproportionate increase in mortality that we have in our serious mental illness. So, you know, I was aware that, you know, the, the, about the care program approach or the CPA and, you know, how there were all sorts of financial incentives um, attached to improve physical health um, monitoring in patients 
who had a serious mental uh, illness. But I would say that was probably the start and end of it. I mean, we obviously had some subspecialities where we looked at um, physical health a bit more closely, eating disorders as an example, um, you know, unexplained symptoms, uh, other example, you know, we had a bit of liaison psychiatry where there was a lot of talk um, about, you know, kind of looking at different kind of physical health presentations, but I, I never felt that it went uh, deep enough. Um, my own interest, I would say, it has been a lifelong interest and I think probably related to my background. Um, my father is an agricultural scientist, a genetist, and, you know, nutrition and nutritional kind of values of almost everything around, you know, what's happening politically in the world in terms of big agriculture, big pharma, big food. Um, it was very topical. This was a, a daily discussion. So I kind of grew up very interested and a bit aware of, you know, how, how what comes to our plate, you know, there are so many kind of political, social, economic influences behind uh, them. Um, the other reason for my personal interest was that, um, you know, as we know, Indians have a disproportionately high risk of uh, diabetes and cardiovascular. Mm. This is worsening in the last 50 years. Um, and it, this was of great interest to me because in my family, we have a huge um, cardiovascular risk uh, burden. And um, when I was training in India and as I was growing uh, in India, I was very fascinated to see these different kind of healthcare uh, systems interact. Um, so when I came to uh, UK, um, I, I guess this was a natural extension. I found myself, you know, kind of talking, you know, showing curiosity and asking my patients about it. But I would say um, that what really changed, uh, you know, my interest into a deeper interest where I started to actively research this was the mismatch the mismatch yeah. that i found uh, in what we were doing and what was happening in front of my eyes um i i think i got a bit disillusioned um it was during my leadership uh, training to see that you know although we were putting so much emphasis and um you know, uh, money into the monitoring, and they, we were not doing as much in terms of active interventions. And I think the penny dropped for me um, in one of uh, you know kind of high level strategic meetings where um, about sequence targets where I was um, working on a project about um, application of sequence targets for uh, physical health monitoring, and um, you know. I was getting a bit impatient about, you know, how, how, how we were going to kind of translate this into something more meaningful. And the reply I got was, you know, the purpose, the main purpose of all this monitoring was to actually wait for a diagnosable condition to happen, for diabetes to happen, because then, yes, we knew what to do about it. And mm. I think I, I just, I felt I, I, I did not agree with it. I was not ready to buy into it. And it, I think for the first time during my specialist registrar training, I realized that um, we, we were just not ready to even kind of acknowledge and see um, the huge role of prevention. Mm -hmm. So for me, uh, none of these uh, cardiovascular problems were incidental. You know, they were happening right in front of my eye, and often started with prescription of an antipsychotic, and you know how to do deal with this conundrum that people's illness were getting better, but they were then dying earlier out of, uh, due to cardiovascular events, sometimes in their forties. And I think this sat very uncomfortably uh, with me. The second uh, influence was really a patient. A patient in uh, my last year of uh, specialist uh, training. Um, this was a 
community psychiatric nurse with a serious mental illness mm. who I had seen after a huge gap who came and said told me that she had under supervision slowly described de-prescribed all her uh, medication she was you know much smaller she had lost a lot of weight and she said that she had explored kind of nutritional um, interventions which has helped her that and you know I, I there was some sort of disbelief and um, when I when I when I discussed this in supervision um, it was really brushed off without much curiosity. Um, so, you know, I, I started to explore some of the things she told me that she had approached. And then I got introduced to this huge area, huge piece of body of research that actually sat there that I was just not aware of. And I, I must say that it was a moment, a little moment of crisis for me in my uh, training to see that, you know, there was all, and I, I just began digging more and more and more and more. And I think I've never stopped. <laughs> and, and I, I, I decided that, you know, the strength of the evidence that I was seeing was at par at what we were very comfortably, um, you know, accepting or some of the psychological drugs and other interventions. And uh, and so, yes, I think that this is how, you know, things are amalgamated. So in, um, so going forward, you know, again, if I start talking about kind of single nutrient research, it is very easy to dismiss that because for everything, uh, you will find contradictory research yeah. because we are looking at nutrients or we are looking at single food components. Similarly, like we see drugs and study them. But I think we, uh, there are now, there's now interesting research coming up, uh, out about, you know, uh, dietary uh, interventions rather than uh, you know kind of single uh, components which I, I think is much more acceptable much of this comes from cardiovascular uh, research you know data is being uh, studied um, now to see what mental health outcomes were um, for um, in these uh, studies so I have now extrapolated that into my practice for metabolic outcomes and you know saying listen guys um, just monitoring is not enough. We have to intervene now. Mm. And what are the interventions, even if it is smoking cessation, but also now focusing on the diet and lifestyle and taking it a bit further. Wow. So you've actually seen where the problem is and managed to integrate it within your practice in the NHS. Mm. So um, I think you mentioned to me before that you're actually creating a clinic around um, nutritional interventions within um, some of your patients. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Um, so uh, I, I think I might not have explained this clearly. So what what I have uh, kind of kept an eye out for as soon as I became a consultant is that, you know, rather than try and change the mindset about something that people might not be aware of or might still not be open, I, I decided that I will look for every opportunity to kind of combine agendas. And the easy, I, I think the low-hanging foot obviously was this focus on the physical uh, health for patients with SMI. So, you know, and, you know, it's, it's, it's a very noble aim, but I thought, you know, this is how I can probably intervene and, you know, and uh, improve outcomes for the patient. So, you know, both in my previous trust and this trust, I have joined, you know, any kind of ongoing work along these lines. So in my current trust, for example, we have an enhanced physical health uh, clinic. Um, only last year, we had two physician associates join the clinic. You know, this clinic was already doing the monitoring, as I explained before. Mm -hmm. And now the enhanced part of it is, you know, extending this to interventions. 
So my physician um, uh, associate has uh, coaching training through me about evidence-based food uh, interventions that we now offer to patients. Obviously, the monitoring is better, but you know the intervention is also to fill that gap between monitoring and treatment, which otherwise would not happen. Yet, so this is that group of uh, patients who, yes, the GP has told them they have high blood pressure and diabetes, but they will never turn up to. Uh, to their GP surgeries for all sorts of uh, reasons, and it is intervening to you know mm-hmm. do whatever is needed to bridge uh, the gap and to repeatedly you know present um, options, you know coach patients into taking the smallest steps towards uh, better physical health. So they've just uh, submitted uh, our paper has been submitted. They did a little bit of evaluation. Unfortunately, because the evaluation, um, you know, we had to kind of. Uh, uh, all the data out that was not uniformly applied to all of you know the 50 odd individuals that we um, had in the clinic because it's very personalized yeah the interventions that one person be, uh, needed was very different to the next so it was not very uh, generalized so some I personally feel some of that granular personalized um, information was lost but we are thinking about ways to you know do more and you know publish a more qualitative uh, piece so that's what happens in a clinic um, and then I think my own day to work every patient I see without exception uh, is seen for an hour and you know that that has been tricky to negotiate but my uh, institutions have been very supportive every patient gets a nutritional intervention every patient does a one day food uh, uh, diary yeah. and you know I start uh, that and just you know see you have to meet where the patient and there are patients where you know we are not able to do anything beyond asking those questions and then there are other patients who um, you know not only implement some of uh, the changes but benefit hugely from, uh, from it and we are able to actually reduce their psychotropic medication as they make uh, improvements so yeah it's very interesting. That is absolutely fascinating. And so before we move on to Kirsty's story, how did you actually manage to convince your trust that you could actually kind of prescribe these nutrition interventions? How does it all work to kind of get them off the psychotropic drugs? Is there a resistance to that? Or they, I'm sure, you know, you'd want to lower the dose of these very strong metabolic changing drugs on the patient. But how does it all work? So, so no, I mean, I think what I have not done is I have not gone to the trust and said that, you know, this is what I intend to do. You know, as I said, you know, I, I have justified this approach based on what we know about the cardiometabolic health for patients with SMI. Yeah? So, you know, if it is an issue that we are expected to address as doctors, I do not not think it should be limited to waiting till diabetes happens and then the intervention is sending them to their GP. So I've just taken it upon myself. If you open any nice guidelines for any (laughs) disorder, the first paragraph will talk about lifestyle interventions. Exactly. And that's that's our main argument. (laughs) We just skip to point three. I know. That's the whole point of NutriTag. We don't know why doctors stick to point three. It's because they don't get taught point one. more water 
after two, you know, doing hit five times a, a week. So it, it's very big, but which is you know a huge opportunity for personalized medicine. I mm. think so. Yeah, no, I've not gone and asked for any special permissions, but I I remain very mindful that I follow nice guidelines. I would never say to the patients, you know, don't take psychiatric, try this instead. But you know, during every consultations, as we go down the list of things that we look at, um, there's lifestyle, and you know, um, I'm very fortunate that I work in organizations where you know they they you know our, our standard templated letters have those headings. Uh, it's just you know what we choose to put put under them, and you know, as as you have those repeated conversations. I mean, I've not had any resistance from anyone, including mm. the GPs or the patients. So doing. Um, that work for them <laughs> so um, yeah i think and sometimes it works and sometimes it uh, doesn't it's very personalized and you know the reason why you don't need special permissions to do the obvious is because if you look at the triad of evidence-based medicine the third uh, um, you know element other than is, is patient's preference yeah, and I'm sure uh, Kirsty will agree that there mm. are patients. There's an increasing interest in patients um, in in you know finding out alternatives to uh, medication, having more curiosity. I, I think we are lagging as doctors in terms of our education and knowledge about evidence-based interventions, whether that comes to exercise or the kind of uh, diet. So I, I think true evidence-based medicine is meeting the patients in terms mm. of developments as well. I yeah. just. I'm going to just uh, jump in quickly before Kirsty speaks. Just to our listeners, what does SMIs mean when you talk about it? Because oh, they won't know. Sorry, yeah, so... <laughs> So SMI stands for serious mental um, illness, sure. and you know it's a term that's used to kind of capture a group of conditions such as schizophrenia, schizoaffective disorder, bipolar affective disorder, severe uh, treatment-resistant depression, um, the kind of illnesses that have a, a, a chronic course and um, are particularly associated with poor outcomes in terms of metabolic health. Brilliant. Okay, on to you, Kirsty. Tell us about how you became interested in the nutrition and lifestyle medicine space within uh, the realms of psychiatry. Absolutely, yeah. I think, you know, it sounds like you're doing some um, amazing work um, in your trust. Um, my my kind of journey into it was, I think, probably started with a bit of a personal one in a way, just kind of, and just figuring out kind of that everything that I ate had some sort of impact on how I was feeling. Um and I know, I, I mean, I know for a lot of people that, you know, they go through life and, and they might not, you know, notice that there's a connection going on here. And for me, I really did. I I was kind of noticing, you know, those vague symptoms like feeling tired all the time or, you know, not being able to concentrate or feeling a bit anxious or I always talk about that kind of, um, you know, you're at work or you're, you're studying and you have that like bit before lunch where you really need to eat. And I, I just noticed that for me personally, I just, I... I wasn't able to focus, I lost the ability to be empathic almost, um, you know, I was really struggling kind of in those moments, and I thought, what's going on here, like, I'm, maybe I'm just, is that I'm just hungry, I'm just hungry, <laughs> so, that, so that really, you know, that really started off my journey thinking, hold on, there's, there's something more going on here, and then I always felt a bit kind of, I don't know what the word is, but I felt a bit like, oh no, like, this is huge, like, we haven't been looking at this, why, and um, how can we, you know, how can we ignore the basics, and, and, and kind of, I, I, I'm really interested in kind of, you know, people's narratives, and, um, 
you know, I, you know, we look at all the evidence and all the guidelines, but I, I really just love getting into people's narratives and sitting down with someone and getting into details about their life. And people come to us with the same, quite similar, you know, patterns. Like, I'm feeling tired, I'm feeling anxious. Um, and, and when I really spoke to people, I, I, re- I found some really interesting stuff. So when you ask the questions, you get some really interesting answers. And if you, I guess if you fail to ask people about what their nutrition is, you're missing a huge opportunity because I've spoken to people who told me that they can't sleep, um, they're feeling really anxious, and they want to see their GP and they want to be prescribed medication. And when I talk to them about what they're eating, they're eating lots of processed foods, lots of kind of um, saturated fat, lots of high sugar, lots of yeah, all of that stuff throughout the day without without realizing, you know. Um, you know, people aren't always aware that these things aren't great for their great for their bodies. Um, and then they, I guess, they get to this: what's wrong with them? Why do I feel this way? I need a sleeping pill. Um, and actually, I realised that people, I spoke to one person who wasn't drinking any water, and I said, "Well, well, that's interesting. Well, how <laughs> how can you be living if you're not drinking any water?" And they told me that all they drank was Lucasaid. Professor Felice Jacker, yeah. And, and no one's really thought to address that. And so 
there are changes kind of yeah happening within the trust and I remember I remember going along to the vending machine that's in one of our um, in one of our hospitals and uh, I just it, there were, uh, yeah and it was for staff and patients but it's you know it's chocolate bars it's it's processed kind of food there were pot noodles in there and um, I just thought wow if we if we can't promote good nutrition in staff as well then how can we how can we model this for our patients so yeah I'm, I'm just that's kind of the bit of, that I'm really interested mm. in and uh, we sort of need like a Jamie Oliver um, approach to uh, nutrition and mental health services I would love to see um, food um, being you know at the front of, of people's minds and you know that we're not giving people um, you know caffeine and um, you know before bed <laughs> um, and we're not giving people um, processed foods on wards because I, I'm not sure that's supporting you know the overall um, uh, holistic view I guess to people recovering um, yeah Wow, no, completely. And such a, yeah, such fascinating insights. And I think it's just brilliant, like Pratima, how you've already been proactive in your role as a psychiatrist within a trust in just kind of nudging people psychologically, whether it's the staff and the patients themselves by asking them what they eat. You're already starting that process of reforming the education around food. And I think it's so startling that you can have trailblazers like yourselves um, you know, real kind of thought leaders on this, but yet it's not ingrained into the um, systemic education when you're training as psychiatrist or within medical school. And it, it's just so shocking to me that we ask within a social history, you learn it in second, third year of medical school, um, how much alcohol do you drink? How are you a smoker? Are you an ex-smoker? But yet we don't even think to ask them about their food and physical activity and how their sleep is. And for me, that is just baffling because like you say, it's like low hanging fruit. It's something that someone can go home immediately and get on that trajectory to change. It's not, you know, a hard kind of out of reach thing um you know just trying to get more steps in and make a few food swaps here and there and sleep hygiene and whatnot it doesn't have to be as difficult and kind of uh, marketed as you know the wellness industry do you don't need all these fancy things that it can be simple and I think it is so crazy that um you know it's not in the from the onset it's not there it's not within the kind of food environment of the hospital services the food environment of society or within the actual education so um yeah no it's baffling to me but brilliant work you're both doing um and so question to you both if you're both kind of you know thought leaders leaders in this area within your own trust and of course like Kirsty, you mentioned you attended that national conference uh, run by Professor Felice Jacker on nutritional psychiatry. How do we make this more mainstream? How do we make this more, um, you know, integrated within the standard um, care of approach when it comes to mental health? I think I think change in the NHS or in a system is is difficult, and I, I my understanding of why it's difficult from from experience is that people are. Um, firefighting within a system that you know is, is high pressure and I think that ability to make change comes from you know some some creativity and some perspective and kind of some ability to come away from the system and observe it from the outside rather than kind of this day-to-day -day grind of just you know being under pressure to get the next thing done so I think it takes people with a real passion you know like myself and Pratima to go to these conferences of our own 
just keep banging on about it because I, I bang on about it all the time with friends, with family, with patients, with colleagues. And I get, you know, people look at me like, well, that's not good, you know, that, that's, that's not going to work or whatever. And I, I think it takes that courage um, because we know that, you know, not everybody is going to back something immediately. Um, it takes time. But I think, I think it's possible. And I think it's what people are demanding. I think it's what patients are demanding. Mm. I think there's been a real shift, um, you know, over the past few years of people wanting, of questioning, well, do I need this? Is there another way? What else can I do? And like you said, Ali, you know, nutrition, it's not, it's not the cause of everything and it's not the resolution for everything, but it's, it's a very quick and simple intervention that everybody can do and it doesn't take, you know, buying lots of expensive foods, like you said. It can be really simple. It can be helping educate someone that they need to drink water and reduce sugary drinks. And then their sleep might change completely. And then that, in turn, will impact anxiety and mood. So, absolutely, I think it's going to take people like us and like, you know, Nutritang all coming together and just keep mm. um, pushing um, until we get to where we want to be and not stop. Mm-hmm. And Prasper, do you think there is scope for a more integrated approach? What What are your thoughts on how this could be developed further within the NHS? So um, I, I think there are huge opportunities on the horizon, uh, uh, Ali. I think compared to 10 years ago, um, I think what I see now is a, a greater emphasis. I think people are realising that the model of care that we have for acute conditions doesn't work well for chronic conditions. Um, so, you know, some of uh, the changes that I see happening, which hold promise, are integrate, uh, integrated pathways that are developing between the primary and secondary care. So, in a, in a busy community mental health team uh, that I work in, you know, we have about 1,300 patients um, under us and, you know, plenty of uh, GPs in the area. and. I think there is there are changes being made now to dissolve the boundaries between primary and secondary care. Mm-hmm. So, and I think that allows opportunities for uh, prevention. Yeah, I think because when you have very segmented uh, pockets of care, you know, there, there are very, I think it translates into very concrete interventions like mm-hmm. prescriptions of, of medication or you know signposting to this short therapy. Whereas where you have a more integrated uh, manner, I think that there's more back and uh, forth. When, the GP and you know more more conversations. So I'm quite uh, excited about that. Um, and you know, as I've said, that I I quite love working very closely with GPs and seeing what we could do until mm-hmm. they become a, a secondary care uh, patient with a full grown uh, depressive uh, syndrome or a, a serious mental uh, condition. Um, but I completely agree with what Kirsty says uh, that change is difficult. Change is even more difficult. Um, in NHS because we have a culture of uh, you know kind of poor change implementation. Yep. So you know the changes in NHS often follow the political cycle. Things start. You know we, we are we are we are all exhausted by constant changes, and unfortunately sometimes even good interventions do not get time to get embedded, uh, to be properly measured and studied before the next person comes and next uh, you know a new set of uh, performance indicators and the whole uh, direction or the interest of the um, organization changes. 
So I, 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 th- I think that that is a real shame. And this is something that I learned in my management training mm-hmm. that, you know, um, and it is this quite, you know, actually a case uh, study for uh, in management for, um, you know, <laughs> doing change um, badly, uh, which is why I think innovation <laughs> is such a buzzword because you know, I completely agree with what Kirsty says. I think it is common sense. I think if we have to ask for our city level evidence to do the mm-hmm. obvious, I think we are missing mm-hmm. the trick. And uh, but the other aspect of change uh, is also resistance. Yeah. As human beings, and as as the doctor Ali, I think you 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 will probably experience it yourself. That you know you will be kind of uh, covertly guided um, into skepticism. Yeah, we are taught that you know being skeptical as a doctor is a good thing, and maybe it is. But I think we we forget that sometimes rigid skepticism is actually um, a, a defense against change. Yeah, mm. so things that we do not know. Uh, being skeptical, oh, but where is the evidence that makes us sound very scientific well, yeah. I think it's much harder to say that I have absolutely no idea about this I've never read a paper on this in my life and no I don't have the interest or passion or I'm just too lazy to go and do the research on me but you can tell me all about it yeah so I think I think that it, it's more than what uh, meets the eye so you know like Kirsty said that uh, you know I think the approach has to be multi-pronged it has to you know um, you, uh, you know I, I love what you said Kirsty that you know whether it is the vending machine in the waiting area. I think we have to create that dissonance between um, the difference in uh, our, our, you know what we are preaching versus what we are practicing. Yeah. So I I often find you know I sit in the room and I'm talking to patients about. Um, know all the virtues of eating better and uh, reducing sugar and they come out uh, and you know there are three vending machines full of fizzy drinks and cokes and uh, junk food so and I think uh, not so long away the same mismatch occurred you know on a cardiac ward after a, a triple bypass you mm. would be served a, a burger and a side of chips mm. yeah um, my, my son a four-year-old son had to go into a um, hospital um, last year and I think what was served to him um, was, you know, I took a picture of it because I think it, again, I think these are little reminders about uh, the difference that we have to uh, cross. So education is a great place to uh, start and, you know, I've put myself out there as a free resource. You know, I'll be happy to use all my teaching time and it has been effective. You know, over the years I get approach more and more um, uh, you know to talk about the subject and I think there you have to be really careful so you know most of the times when I'm presenting uh, you know my, my presentations are titled uh, you know current state of nutritional evidence in uh, mental health so you know I'm, I'm coming uh, you know I will I will modulate the language mm. to make it more palatable but then use that opportunity to ignite interest and have the conversation sometimes sometimes outright debates even I think a debate is good because it's not like it's a clear area it's not so black and white you know the fact remains that we have lots of conflicting um, uh, research we have a lot of vested interest uh, when it comes to food just because um, you know a, a pill is not pharmacological does not mean that there are not the same kind of economic or industry influences and so you know I, I don't believe in doing a green pharmacy so instead of uh, antidepressants I'm dishing out uh, uh, nutraceuticals I, I don't think that makes any sense so I think you have to be very open uh, um, and, and start the discussions to proceed uh, the argument. Mm-hmm. And I think it's so interesting to just unpack a bit about 
um, you know, what you've just said, because it's just so profound that what we're doing is we've got an environment that's supposed to be healing, like the hospitals, yet it's just not reflective of that when, you know, like you say, your son's in hospital and he's served up processed or unhealthy, an unhealthy meal. And I think it's so important that these therapeutic environments are holistic in their approach entirely. And I think it's really interesting to see, um, you know, amazing uh, innovative approaches coming to the forefront. We've just promoted the work of a mental health nurse uh, who's on the clinical NHS clinical entrepreneurship scheme called Matt War, and he started the Live More. Uh, organization and that's getting gyms into psychiatric trusts around um, the UK and getting the staff and the patients to take part in um, strength-based training exercise and all of that and you know that's really important because they have you kind of have to meet patients with the kind of advice you're giving them there and then so they can try it out under supervision and get comfortable with it rather than just saying oh it's just as easy as joining a gym in your community they might not have the funds they might not have the confidence but doing it within that environment of the hospital where they're so supported by the staff could really make a huge difference so i think work like that is so important and yeah. like you say, getting more health, like getting healthier options within the hospital setting. And what I'm interested in is whether you think this scope for an integrated approach is kind of more accessible in certain um, in certain psych- psychiatric settings. So, for instance, with CAMS, when I spent time on my site placement um, at um, one of the units for uh, young people, it was quite apparent to me that they had their families as part of the intervention, they had yoga, they had mindfulness practice, and you know, the whole schooling thing where they're learning together, those group environments. Um, And I think that is quite different to how adult psychiatry is from what I saw. Um, So I kind of wanted to hear your views on whether you think this holistic approach, there's, you know, there's low hanging fruit for it to be done faster and perhaps, you know, CAM settings versus older age psychiatry and whatnot, because, you know, kids want to play with each other and interact at the end of the day. And you've got the families on your side sometimes to actually help make that change sustainable at home. Because if you're having a chat with the kids about their eating, especially with a child who has an eating disorder, for instance, you know, you have to get the parents on board. Yeah, I think, um, you know, the the setting probably is um, quite important um, when it comes to this. And it's I think when you talked about the, like, the, the environment almost, I think that in itself is kind of, you know, our responsibility in a way, and the environment should lend itself. So if, for example, somebody in an acute ward who's extremely psychotic, extremely, um, you know, or they're having a manic episode... Um, I I would imagine maybe that isn't the right time to sit down with someone and mm. talk about you know the ins and outs of what they eat during the day. But I think the ward could model some of that in its you know in a, in, a, in its kind of containing way. Like actually, this is happening. This is what we're feeding you whilst you're here. Um, these are the things we recommend in a in a more subtle way. And then perhaps those more in depth conversations can happen. I would imagine. In, thinking about community services and yeah. doing that longer yeah that longer piece of work where there's a real relationship and trust building and thinking about our care coordinators and you know and when, so when that so I think yeah the, the, the kind of environment definitely the kind of um, setting is, is really key and I guess we have to 
Mm -hmm. And no, it just seems very interesting, like what you've just mentioned, that the environment, the setting, the institution has the responsibility themselves. It's not just all, you know, individual on and blame onto the patient because um, I've recently listened to a really interesting podcast by um, the psychologist Kimberly Wilson and she has a crime and nourishment podcast and she looks at all the research yes. around prisons and how... Yeah you can literally make the most profound intervention to help with prisoners behavior and that is nutrition and the body of evidence has been around for ages but it's been um, collecting dust because people haven't acted upon it and that has been shown to be the most profound way to really help reduce angry anxious behavior whilst in that prison setting and it just shows once again the argument for it's not given enough value because it's not a drug because it's not you know electroconvulsive therapy something so Absolutely. Yeah. yeah and i think we have a huge responsibility because you know we we not only don't create an environment that promotes that but we also prescribe medications to patients that increase their risks of things um, and i think i think we have to if we're going to do that i think we should be offering something else um, you know an opportunity um, for them to engage in exercise. I mean, you know, the evidence for exercise is huge as well. I mean, I think I think this is where gathering too much evidence probably becomes <laughs> counterproductive. Like you were saying, Pratima, there's all these all these papers around evidence that mm. gets really confusing. But but mm. fundamentally, we're talking about exercise, good nutrition, yeah, you know, just all of the all of the things that are crucial. So mm. so yeah. So I think my, um, uh, I mean, I, I was listening very carefully to what you're saying, Kirsty, and I think it, I completely agree with, you know, kind of pacing interventions to where the patient is. Um, but I'll, I'll share a funny anecdote through. So, you know, I mentioned that I, I put myself out there and I basically go and talk about this topic, uh, you know, when anybody uh, invites me. So I've, I've done teaching sessions in Leeds and Norfolk and Norwich Trust in, you know, Kingsland where I, myself, Lieutenant Dunstable, St. George's. Um, and interestingly, what I found is that, you know, again, going back to resistance to change, that, you know, in the audience where, you know, where if you think about the cycle of motivation, depending on where the clinician is, you will get an counter argument. So I've been told, you know, if I'm talking to a group of inpatient uh, um, doctors, I've been told, oh, you, you know, maybe you can do all of this in community, it's really, uh, yeah, but, you know, inpatient, not uh, so sure. I've spoken to community psychiatrists who have said, you know what, we have far, you know, we, we were extremely busy, we, you know, we hardly get to see somebody once in three months, and, you know, this works all right for when you have the patients locked in on a ward for a month and, you know, you have your attention. So I've, I've heard arguments on both sides. And what, what I really think is that, you know, just like if we think back to the days when the CPA was introduced and the physical health checks, you know, exactly the same thing happened. Every, you know, faction was telling that it is easier to do it than the other. You know, 15 years down the line, we, we don't question it. Everybody does it. You know, it's just the norm. It, we, we wouldn't dream of kind of questioning whether we should do the physical health monitoring for somebody on a ward or in the community. And I, I guess the same thing needs to happen about nutrition and lifestyle. We need to just accept this is a vital part. How can what we put in our mouths three times a day not relate to our physical uh, health and well-being? Yeah? And then we just have to continue to you know, kind of educate and uh, progress the agenda, present uh, data, and 
will it does not become uh, an issue that we even uh, contest and um, you know so the whole idea about inpatient uh, wards and i'm sure gusty have observed in training and uh, now um, patients on inpatient wards uh, order on an average four takeaway meals so if you go into the Yeah. <laughs> offices of any mental health trust in UK behind the nurses uh, <laughs> um, PC would be a fat stack of fast food junk food you know pizzas etc yeah? and you know it, it is something that staff actively facilitate yeah so that that is the norm that is the reality yeah mm-hmm. compared to that i have worked in oxleys as a registrar we had It was the, I was working in the psychiatric intensive care unit. Yeah. So now again, you know, talking about setting, it probably is the worst setting. We have the most unwell, most agitated. You know, patients are there because they are extremely agitated. Nobody would dream of thinking. But I have seen more uh, lifestyle and nutrition being done there than any other place. We had a wonderful OT. We had a team that worked really together. A team that very much made business to look after the patients. You know, there were football coaches visiting to motivate. patients on this it was a award winning pq and the ot uh, there who i still remember very lovingly called catherine would have uh, food demonstrations there would be smoothie groups wow. be, you know many uh, there would, would be a coaching uh, kitchen one patient at a time as you can remember for this uh, group you know just teaching them how to make an omelet and yeah. all the, the patients and the ward, you know on a regular basis did cooked for the patients and everybody ate together i yeah. think that eating together i would say is an intervention it's a yes, nutritional that social connectedness mm. that would be you know some of these patients live in supported housing where they don't even have an access to a kitchen so i, I guess it's uh, a nutritional intervention not always means you know eating a uh, both uh, of uh, you know kind of chia porridge pudding with blueberries nutritional intervention is very vital even introducing the culture of you know sitting down to eat while you're not looking at a screen um, and you're just having the conversation they're creating a culture so many patients on that ward experienced that culture for the first time at a point that they were acutely unwell and I, i'm really inspired by such opportunities and um, i'm also very amused you know when I, whenever i'm challenged and i say to people all the time that you know what yes you, wherever you are we are all working in extremely difficult circumstances but this is just way too important for us to say that it's too hard for us to do i think that's great pratima and, and and that taking an opportunity at any point and i think you know i've, I've certainly had experience in secure services where you know we tried to implement some of these changes and actually when we started the conversation the resistance mm-hmm. was actually from the staff Mm-hmm. Um, about <laughs> their views about what they thought the patient would and wouldn't want. So yeah, mm-hmm. thinking about takeaways and like, well, can we can we limit people? Is this you know, mm-hmm. is it their right um, yeah. to have access to these things? Yeah. Is it their right to have access to this vending machine? And yeah. actually, we we made all these like speculations around what might be right and wrong. But when we got the patients in the room, they said, no, I I, I really want this, and we were wow. you know people were surprised. Um, they said no. Like, we we just don't know how, but we want it. We don't want to look like this. We don't want to feel like this. So so yeah, absolutely. I think yeah, there's, there's a place for for doing it. Yeah. Uh, can I give another very cool example? Please, the same please. Lines, Kelsey, because such a wonderful example that you have given that it's about assumptions. So in South London mm-hmm. and Maudsley, uh, you know, in, in one of the teaching pro- uh, programs, data was presented. I'm not sure if it has been published yet, but a really, really cool uh, study about smoking. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot. 
more than the general population. We also may know that um, uh, the incidence of um, smoking in inpatient settings is even more than the, uh, the community. And we know that for many of these patients, their smoking actually increases while uh, they are um, uh, inpatient. And the general assumption is that patients are dependent, they are smoking mm. more, Reducing it will actually increase uh, uh, aggression and there would be resistance. So this is the assumption and what the data the data presented is that actually reducing, you know, actively offering smoking cessation interventions, you know, taking away the smoking room um, and just kind of adding that layer of difficulty or even that number of steps for a patient to have to go outside a particular uh, perimeter to smoke actually reduce the number of aggressive incidents on the ward mm. and patients uptake and continuity of for smoking cessation increase. So I, I think that's a wonderful point you make, Kirsty, that you know some of the things, some of the barriers are actually our own assumptions and yeah. they're actually from staff. I mean, the number of times the staff have told me, oh yes, he eats badly, but that's all he has got, um, you know, as, as a way to probably, you know, not go um, that extra uh, step and offer uh, these things um, more actively. Completely. I think it's so important, this nudging psychology that you talk about, you know, having a vending machine just in the most easy accessible place within the hospital ward makes it so easy. But if you add those few extra steps and you make it more difficult and that's why fast food, once again, it's so easy. But cooking from scratch requires time. It allows you to engage with the mindful activity of actually preparing, chopping, putting it all together. So I couldn't agree with you more. This kind of modern life of having things so easily accessible actually is to our detriment and I think like you say it's reflected even within staff uh, because staff are shift, sometimes shift working and you know if you're on a night shift and you need to keep going sometimes I know a lot of friends of mine who um, yeah. doctors you know it, the easiest thing is to reach for that starchy high sugary snack that comes right out of the vending machine into your hand go back onto the ward because you're always rushing and I think it's so important to just kind of take a step back, like you say, and think how can we change the environment to make small things, um, you know, put small things in place to just make it a little bit more of an effort for that person. So when they're actually kind of in that pre-contemplative phase of, do I want a chocolate bar, don't I? Do I want a chocolate bar, don't I? It isn't just easily made that decision for them by it being in their face. And that's what supermarkets do as well, you know, by having all those sweets, how they used to, I know they're not really out anymore at the front of the till it kind of pushes someone over the edge if they were trying to have self-control and not go for it but it pushes them over the edge by just putting it within their line of vision and that's why yeah it's crazy and that's why we can't have an individual blame society whether it comes to obesity or whatever it is because the environment feeds so much into it like you say um and so I just wanted to ask you, Pratima, I know you gave a talk to St. George's Medical School and you briefly mentioned it and it was on nutritional psychiatry, why and how. Could you just tell our listeners some of the key take-home messages from your talk and just touch upon how you think that topic was actually received by the medical students? Um, yes, yeah, so um, I, I think the main um, 
thing that I present when I speak to medical students is that I I tell them about the emerging evidence about you know dietary approaches. I give them some information about how not to get distracted by conflicting research, especially about single nutrients or single food, and you know just talk to them about the methodology of nutritional research and why you know maybe an RCT is not the best way to research this area and you know generally how difficult it is to you know not only get funding but actually do the research and you know the huge number of biases that lie uh, um, in um, uh, in uh, kind of uh, researching in this area so the main take-home messages from the talk was basically reinforcing the importance of small interventions yeah. I reminded them that if their training is anything like mine up till your final year you will for every illness learn about you know etiological factors and suddenly before they know it the world will change and they will start to match pill to symptoms and I implored them to probably keep in mind the physiology that you, they are uh, training because no matter how much pharmacology you read the physiology remains unchanged it's it's not you know we'll know more um, and you know that that is where lifestyle interventions come in that you know when you your lifestyle is at conflict with your physiology, um, you know, it creates problems, it creates chronic uh, illnesses. So, you know, I, I gave them examples from my clinical work, examples from case studies, but also lots of RCT data about, you know, the different dietary approaches that um, is showing really promising uh, evidence. And um, you know, the feedback that I got was really encouraging. It was it was very positive. I think people really enjoyed it. I I, I have most fun talking to medical students because they are they're so much more open minded. I don't think they have yet been um, you know kind of jaded by the reality of uh, the systems that they're going to work in. So and they are enthusiastic. They have more energies. I've been approached by a few of them wanting to do bits of work together. So it's been really encouraging. I really feel energized uh, when I speak to medical students. That's so good to hear. And we need to clone you and get more, <laughs> more of you at different medical schools. It's so important that they're actually aware of this. I was speaking to a friend of mine the other day who wants to do psychiatry like me. And I, he says, oh, I'm surprised you want to do psychiatry. I thought you wanted to do something like in public health because of all your nutrition interests. I go, no, no, no. I want to very much pursue a career in psychiatry. I'm very interested in the field of nutritional psychiatry. He goes, oh, I've never heard of that. What is it? I didn't know that was a thing and it's just it's so interesting that you know it's just not been spoken about enough um and I just wanted to ask both of you a question around the kind of political and socio-economic side of nutrition and you know how you handle conversations with patients or with the rest of staff when people say well do you know what healthy eating's more expensive, I'm living on benefits, I, um, you know, have very little money for food, um, you know, when I go to the shops, the um, ready-made meal is far more, it's far cheaper than getting all the individual ingredients from scratch, like, what do you, how do we overcome this, what do you, how do you tackle this? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, yes, I, I think there's no easy way to do it. And uh, I think everybody who starts in this field has told me, and so was the experience uh, myself, 
is that you, you do start, you know, because you ha- you're very passionate, you, you have lots of information, you want to give it all, and you hope that information on its own will lead to a change. It hardly does. So I would say that probably I, I try less harder now. I'm more mindful um, at times when I realize that I'm working harder than the patient. And I think I've just become more nuanced in my approach. Um, and I, I pace the interventions over a number of um, appointments rather than bombard people with information because, you know, they, you know I think it, it, it just, you know, they, they disconnect, you know, you lose them. Um, and the, the whole um, premise of uh, cost is actually... Are actually inaccurate. Yes, mm-hmm. I, I think being uh, unwell long with a long-term condition is definitely more uh, expensive in the long term if we are to you know measure it in terms of quality of life. Um, but you know again, I think it's a myth. You know, and there was a time where I was also the belief that because we have a free you know so-called free healthcare uh, system, people are not taking responsibility for uh, their own health. You know, that is not. You know, I would no, I no longer think uh, that. I think there's a real lack of information and uh, um, you know education and I think a coaching approach works very well so Mm -hmm. I've had patients you know know, I I only have 10 minutes to do this in my usual appointments and we have been really flexible you know I've had patients it was never not my idea but one of my patients brought you know five or six early bills and she said you know what I, I listened, I forgot half of the things you told me, but I think you're on to something, you know, here are my grocery bills, tell me. And, you know, I took a pen and I just crossed, cross circle, cross circle, cross. And we, you know, by the end of it, she had a concrete list of, you know, something that was very personalized to her about what she could have more wow. of. And then I would add like three things. And, you know, that had glanced to, gave me a budget. You know, most of my patients are living on benefits. You know, yeah. I, and I, I would sometimes have patients who are, you know, very, um, you know, comfortable in terms of finances, and you know, it's not really a limiting factor. The other thing is, you know, just kind of creating, creating the little bit of dissonance. And a good uh, example is using the cost that uh, you know other money patient would spend on smoking. Yeah, I never realized. I mean, I'm not a smoker. I never realized how expensive cigarettes are. <laughs> it is such an expensive habit. And you know, sometimes you know, I would just ask patients about you know, the, you know, how much they spend and you know, if they were to, everybody wants to smoke, uh, stop uh, smoking, everybody has tried and, you know, some uh, succeed. So, you know, it's just using some something comparative where they could see, but not, you know, keeping it achievable. I think people can improve a lot in terms of, you know, whatever they are eating. And just to give an example, I recently, during COVID, had a patient who was in um, a deep, financial difficulties, lots of uh, debts, lots of, uh, you know, kind of arrears with council tax, lots of problems with HMRC, because um, he was self-employed and uh, during the COVID period, the um, company went bankrupt. Mm -hmm. Now, this patient had a list of 17 medications. He had multiple health conditions, including he was on opioids for pain. He was also diabetic and he was completely reliant on the food parcels that he was receiving. So he sent me a picture. (laughs) And, you know, what what did it have? So it had some fresh produce, a bit of tin stuff, but more than half of it was. um, So he he got 250 bag of uh, uh, rice, but a 2 kg bag of uh, 
sugar. And, you know, this was obviously, I mean, he knew. I didn't need to tell him that, you know, what, what he had was not conducive to his physical health. And um, so, you know, we, we just started to look at what different combinations of things that he could try. And he was much more creative than I mm-hmm. could be. But he just needed almost the permission to not eat the stuff that would actively harm him. And, and feel, you know, we, we had the conversation about where he could have, you know, that additional help. And, you know, it, it, it brings up all sorts of uh, discussions, discussions about, you know, as I said, the food culture, you know, their experience of nurture and, uh, you know, uh, you know what, what mealtimes were like in the families, what it even means to not have mm. food, you know, what it means to ask for this help, what it means to be lonely and not have anybody, you know, how, how hard it is to motivate oneself. Um, to take that effort to cook from uh, scratch, and then you know sometimes it's very there are very concrete suggestions like you know giving them permission. Frozen vegetables are all right. Mm, mm, <laughs> that you, mm. you don't need to go for you know kind of organic artichokes yeah. and uh, yeah. So you know just it. Uh, I think a lot can be done. Food uh, eating healthy is expensive, no doubt, but I, I think we could all eat better in. Um, uh, you know. It, in whatever we are spending on our food and I think it's not been such a big issue because um, um, you know the deserts are a huge issue especially for you know in terms of childhood obesity when secondary school students get to go out at lunch they get given permission and all there is within high street is a kfc and other fast food chains and that becomes the social point as well so that's where they all meet their friends and it's very difficult and kirsty do you have any um points you want to bring up about this area I think you're right um, about it being achievable um, and you know it doesn't have to be kind of all of the really you know more expensive um, health foods that you, that you mentioned but there can be those really small changes and I kind of from a personal um, you know perspective I was brought up in a family where we ate um, the very infamous turkey twizzlers and uh, <laughs> microchips and you know we had we had dinner in front of the tv and we, you know, we didn't have a lot of fruit in the house. It just wasn't. It just wasn't what we did. And I don't. Mm. I sort of look, you know, at my family, and I think I don't. It, you know, there's nobody to blame here. It's mm. kind of like a culture of just what people do, um, and then a lot of people not actually realising the impact it has on them. So it's helping them, I guess, first of all, to see that it's possible for change. Um, if you take, um, you know, that person that was drinking Lucasade all day, you know, that's that's a very cheap. Um, switch to make so it's not Mm. all about adding in expensive things um and yeah i mean certainly i've I've managed to introduce my own dad to smoothies i mean it's taken a really long time but you know Mm. just adding in some things that are nutritional and again like you said it's helping people invest in their health like why would you not invest Mm. in 
your own body because I think, yeah, you know, years down the line, you are saving money in, in many, many ways, potentially. So, um, yeah, and quality of life, certainly thinking about, um, yeah, all the different health problems that can come along with that. Um, and yeah, helping people make those switches, yeah, changing where they're spending their money. Um, you know, is it smoking? Is it something else? Mm. Um, yeah, and I think there is some research, and I think Felice Jackson, um, um, Felice did, um, you know, a paper um, which showed that actually, it, you know, it didn't work out more expensive. I think she did quite expensive. Exactly. Uh, she did the... That's what I loved about the smiles trial that Felice did. It actually included the cost of the modified Mediterranean diet that was prescribed to her subset of patients, which is so crucial for studies going forward. And so people can't use the excuse, well, nutrition is expensive, eating well and all of that. Um, And I think what you both have touched upon, which is so fascinating, is just the power of using the tool of health coaching and how that is absolutely invaluable for your and your patient's partnership and, you know, helping them get on that trajectory for change. And I'm actually involved in a really interesting project at the moment with um, a professor of primary care at Bristol. Um, my co-founder Ian and I are working on it looking at the role of medical students as health coaches on the wards because you know as you probably know and I can definitely recall this with much <laughs> with much more recent experience and um, I'm sure you maybe felt the same way but medical students are often loose kind of uh, at a loose end they're just extra parts on the wards they don't know what they're doing they're waiting for someone to help them um, give them something to do and see an interesting patient you're often just like dawdling around trying to look useful but you're really not um and what we're looking at is how can medical students when they're doing their clerking we're in such a valuable and you know fortunate and privileged position that we have a lot of time we don't have to rush off and do the next job we can talk to patients for an hour and a half if we want to and if we have a little bit of training why can't we be kind of advocates of health and wellness on the wards and have a chat with them about um their diet and lifestyle and you know get a little kind of prescription going around it um I'm glad you think so. I think it's so useful and it gives it gives that it goes back to the idea of giving medical students more of a purpose and it's useful for consultation skills. It's you know, it's helping the NHS because we've got time and busy clinicians don't. It's and obviously we're not trying to be dietitians or anything like that, but you can then refer on when there is if there is something big that pops up. But like you say, most of the time it's just to help their general mental and physical well being with simple changes um so yeah very interesting there and so we're going to start to wrap up a little bit so i just want to hear from you what you guys think are interesting resources whether it's books um studies uh, around nutritional psychiatry that you want to share we've spoken about felice and her team um at the food and mood center in melbourne what what would you like to share with our audience of things that they can go away and read so again, I think we have both touched on uh, the International Society for Nutritional Psychiatric Research conference that uh, was held in London in October last year. So ISNPR.org is always a great site because you, you get the most up-to-date uh, nutritional research um, evidence. That's where I go when I need uh, quality research. Um, so I think that's a great research. I think you've uh, mentioned some other projects for so the Food Food Project. That's European um, group 
they have some really interesting and easy to use content for both patients and professionals so they they have a four size uh, leaflets that gives information about how to apply the Mediterranean diet. So that's what we use in Heart Enhanced and it's a physical health uh, clinic. Um, I personally am a great fan of uh, the PHC, uh, the Physic, um, uh, Physical Health Collaboration. Um, it's a network of uh, you know patients, professionals, um, uh, experts by experience who hold a conference regularly. There are some very interesting YouTube videos which I think everybody should see. And um, they, they have fantastic uh, speakers um, and uh, you know, they, they talk a lot about um, the lifestyle and nutritional uh, interventions from a wide perspective, both strategic, political, as well as you know, uh, very much clinical. And you have lots of ex- um, experts by experience uh, sharing their insights about, um, so for example, the low carb approach for diabetes and the wonderful uh, outcomes people are achieving from that. We've had um, Professor um, Robert Lustig talking about sugar and the influences of you know big food on um, the political uh, uh, the policies uh, that affect um, you know exactly what we have been talking about. So I think these are both great resource. I have a website with uh, some information. Uh, I've not you know paid a lot of it, uh, attention to populate it. Uh, so you know my name pratimasing.com has just a, a list of things uh, that I talk and teach about. Uh, but I, I'm, I'm hoping to put links um, to more uh, you know, interesting studies that I come across uh, so that you know it's a handy uh, resource as well. I mean, there's so much more. I think I, there are lots of, uh, there are many heroes that I follow in this um, area myself. It's really good to hear. And Kirsty, what would you recommend? Yeah, I guess just to add to that, the, you know, some of the areas that I've looked at so there's the IFM, which is the um, yeah integrative functional medicine, um, and they're based over in America. And again, they they do lots of training and courses. I think they're due to have a conference this year, which has unfortunately been delayed. But um, again, they use they use a model of um, you know lifestyle, trying to understand and get to the bottom of what's driving people's um, com- you know common symptoms and issues. Um, and then we've built it within that is a nutrition model. So they have a really good toolkit um, there for talking to patients about nutrition. Um, I guess uh, Integrative Centre for Medicine as well, um, which is based in Bristol. So just looking at the role of um, yeah more integrated approaches essentially, which which includes um, you know lots of different things like you know yoga and and, and nutrition again is inbuilt in there. So it's linking all of those things together um, and certainly I've been asked to um, contribute to a book that I hope will be out um, next year um, but that is for medical students as well so looking um, at the role of nutrition um, and it take, I think the book goes through kind of all the different systems in the body and how nutrition can impact and again fascinatingly we, they added in the chapter on mental health um, yes. quite late on um, <laughs> and I thought mm, that's interesting because um very difficult to get people to um, use nutrition to take care of their physical health if there's um, psychological components um, driving what's going on underneath. So, um, you know, mental health problems and, and you know, thinking about thinking about people who, um, you know, go in and have a heart attack and then people, you know, are left with advice to not drink and not smoke and not eat certain things. But actually what's driving that is the fact that they feel really depressed um, mm. and they've got an emotional eating thing going on. So I think... It's 
it's absolutely key that nutritional psychiatry is going to be the thing that pins all of these other things together so yeah I couldn't agree more and yeah we we've been working with NEDPRO the Global Centre for Nutrition and Health um, on helping them get that Elsevier nutritional yeah. textbook off the ground and it's going to be brilliant because like we say it's not been given enough value as the rest of medicine you've got Coomer and Clark which is brilliant and goes through all the biomedicine and the, the physiology and whatnot and management but we really need to have a textbook of nutrition and lifestyle medicine interventions within each of the specialties it's it's paramount for it to be taken seriously and you know then the next step is as we know medical students and doctors alike assessment drives learning so we need to start getting um, it all into OSCE stations and into multiple choice questions for exams and then we'll really hopefully you know breed a culture where medics do know what's going on with nutrition and lifestyle even though it's been part of the guidelines for goodness knows how many years <laughs> well done <laughs> thank you that's brilliant and so we're just going to wrap up and I asked this question to all my guests that come on the podcast because I assume they all love their food considering the work they do and why I've asked them on. So I'd love to know from the two of you what would be your ideal last supper. So if you only had one day left to live, a little bit morbid, but what would be your ideal starter, main and dessert? Decisions! It doesn't have to be crazy healthy as well because you've only got one day left to live. Longevity goes out the window. Absolutely. (laughs) But we love foods. Probably probably something fish based for starter, like scallops in garlic butter, something like that. It doesn't quite go together, but hey. And maybe then a spaghetti bolognese um, and definitely chocolate for pudding, always. Polyphenols. Um, and I think for me, I would say that you know, again, I think I keep banging on about uh, this, but I think for me, food, food is just so more, more than food. You know, food for me is really nurture. It's culture. It's family time. It's you know, spending time with your loved ones. And um, so, you know, my my seven year old daughter uh, makes a concoction. Uh, so she she has developed an interest in foraging like me. So she would she now identifies a few edible uh, weeds in the garden and she usually pop them into a glass of water and make a drink so I think I would love I love if if this was my last day on earth I would love to still have this you know absolutely yucky concoction of bits floating in a glass of water which has to be made by my daughter and for for the main um, I think nothing beats uh, the aloo paratha that my mom makes so this is a childhood favorite it's it's a super unhealthy just a, a flatbread uh, filled with spiced uh, vegetables and my mother hands down makes the best I've, I've spent 10 years of married life trying to perfect it and I don't even come close so as soon as she lands in UK within 24 hours she's making that for me so that definitely would remain the last thing that I would like to eat for pudding I would say um, one of the, my most favorite things um, is an Alfonso mango 
So it comes from a, a region in India called Ratnagiri, and they have the the most fragrant, juiciest King of Man Goyalpanzo. So I'll have a giant one of those for my birthday. Tasty, tasty. I bet you're fasting. I bet you're over your fasting and you're ready for brunch now, aren't you, Pratima? <laughs> And, and finally, where can people find you and get in touch with you both? So you've mentioned your websites um, and just any sort of social media handles or email addresses. Yeah. Sure. So I, I guess Instagram, I am on there as this is Dr. Kirsty. Um, uh, people can also find me um, on our YouTube channel um, for Psychiatrics. Chicks. Um, um, we haven't really touched on that today, but yeah, it kind of just tell us a little bit because I love it, and yeah. we've not had time. Tell us why oh, you started it, and amazing. yeah, yeah. So I, we started this YouTube channel. So myself and two of my amazing friends and colleagues, um, uh, so three psychiatrists, and we 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 basically were we've had these clinical experiences where we noticed that you know lots of our patients, especially females, were coming in, and there was kind of these lots of underlying themes, um, and we kind of you know, with, with social media and how the world is at the moment, um, there's this real drive for, um, you know, everything to be perfect, everything to be happy, and with this complete avoidance of kind of what suffering is, and we know that we can't avoid suffering, it's it's what it is to be human, and so we knew from these patients that when we spent time with them, actually, when they were able to talk about some of these really difficult things that they were holding inside them, um, it actually lowered their, their symptoms, it helped them to kind of reach out, so in our episodes, we basically talk about anything that can be thought about can literally be talked about. So we have got episodes on um, trauma and shame, incest, kind of masturbation and sexual desire. So you can find anything in there that people might struggle um, to talk about. And we, we've already had such a good response from this. Lots of people reaching out saying, actually, they connect with the things we're, we're talking about and it's the stuff that they hold themselves um, and don't share with others so our goal is to just really talk about the stuff that just gets left unsaid and give people permission to do the same um, with the hope that it will reduce any kind of you know anxiety feelings of shame and, and, and that people experience on their own I highly recommend it listeners <laughs> especially the dating dynamics episodes very interesting to hear about modern dating with apps and how you know the power play is still present and difficult um and brilliant and Pratima um so yes uh, I am on Twitter and the handle is uh, at doctor underscore Pratima Singh and my email is contact at pratimasingh.com which is also on the website pratimasingh.com and I get you know all sorts of interesting people getting in touch and we have really interesting conversations Uh, so that is me on the web Um, if I may add like when you asked earlier about websites I would like to highly recommend to anybody listening um, mindhealth360.com is a new website started by again uh, a, a visionary uh, a, a person who has lived experience of um, um, mental health problems who used holistic medi- um, um, medicine to improve um, her own health but has started uh, this beautiful website with lots of interesting research- resources um, and it also kind of touches on uh, the functional medicine that uh, Kirsty uh, mentioned and they have a very interesting podcast about things related to mental health that you never hear in conventional medicine for example the importance of how you breathe
mm-hmm. um, you know, what the effect of mouth breathing versus nose uh, breathing, you know, sugar, you know, really varied uh, topics. So that's a great website um, for information as well as resources um, and people practicing more holistically in uh, the UK. So that's run by Kirkland um, Newman's uh, Smuggers is the name of uh, the person running it. So I highly recommend that website. Wonderful. Well, a huge thank you to you both. Very inspiring women. Um, I like the female psychiatrist theme we've got going on here. And honestly, it's been it's been brilliant. We've really touched upon so much within such an emerging field. And I can't wait to hopefully work with you both in the future when I join your field. <laughs> Thank you both so much. Have a wonderful weekend. Enjoy the sunshine and please go and eat. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Abby. And thanks once again for inviting us to uh, this. And, you know, as Kirsty said, really inspiring and we're so proud that you're starting so early and, uh, you know, hopefully you, you'll progress and take this field so much more further than I and Kirsty have been uh, so far taking on your work don't worry you've 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 blazed the trail already we'll all be working together thank you both and chat soon bye wow another wonderful guest stay tuned for new episodes on nutritank's nourish your mind podcast nutritank is an award-winning innovative information hub for food nutrition and lifestyle medicine with a current mission to improve nutrition and lifestyle medicine education within medical training nationwide. Nutritank aims to empower healthcare professionals and members of the public to improve their health and well-being through diet and lifestyle modifications. Visit Nutritank.com for our membership packages, follow us on social media and join our community. Bye for now! Please note that this podcast aims to educate and not to replace healthcare professionals' advice So please continue to seek help from your nutritionists, your dietitians and your doctors. Thank you. If you enjoyed this episode and you haven't already listened to Food and Mood Part 1, then have a listen after this.